For those of you who don't know me, I was on staff and now I am the chair of our shepherd board as well as a high school volunteer. So it is good to be back up here and with you um, as always. Um, and I'm curious, speaking of being a youth leader, have any of you sometime in the last few months had a moment when all of a sudden a whole bunch of people took a picture at the same time? Anyone experience this? If you, the high school teachers are nodding their heads because if you're around a lot of teenagers, young adults, you've probably witnessed this happen. Do any of you know why that happened? The hint of teenagers and young adults, that seemingly strange moment, if you ever witness it, it's coming, is brought to you by the newest social media platform that hit over the summer, which is called Be Real. And all the teenagers in the room know what I'm talking about. Uh, now, we all know that social media has become notorious for being overly curated, and it's all picture-perfect images or carefully crafted tweets and captions and these can feed often our insecurities or unhelpful comparisons because we forget that what we see is not entirely real or it's not the whole story. So enter Be Real. The way this works is that once a day, all users get an alert on their phone at the exact same time and you have two minutes to take a picture wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And it automatically takes a picture using actually both the front and the self-facing camera. So no more of that you know, Instagram picture-perfect house, but all the dirty dishes and the laundry behind you. Uh, Be Real would capture both. Uh, so if you miss the window, you can still post late, but it tells everyone how late you posted. So as an SNL sketch put it, everyone knows you're not being real. Uh, and so it's once a day, it limits the captions, and it's just where you are. Now, honestly, the best explanation, if you're still confused, is that SNL sketch, so feel free to go Google it afterwards uh, and later watch it. But I think it exploded in popularity because so many of us are tired of fake. We're tired of the perfectly curated or polished images. We're tired of seeing people or companies say all the right things, but we don't know if their actions actually back it up. And while this is particularly evident on social media, we know that it goes beyond that. We've seen too many stories of reputable people who have a story break, and we see something going on behind the scenes that doesn't line up with that reputation, who claim to be one thing, and then we see something else entirely. So while this inauthenticity or the disconnect between an image or reputation and action feels like a particularly heightened phenomenon these days, it's not new. And in fact, it's a quite ancient dynamic. And so today, as we continue in our series, Ears to Hear, we're going through each of Jesus's seven letters to the churches as told by John in the book of Revelation. Letters that often, including today, are calling out problematic behaviors and dynamics in the church. And today's church, Sardis, struggled with this problem of having a reputation and an image of being one way, but acting and living a completely different way. So feel free to turn me with, with me in your Bibles or Bible app or read with me on the screen this letter to the church of Sardis in Revelation 3. 
says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have heard and received. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. But the one who conquers, his clothes will be thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. So the church of Sardis is inauthentic, to put it mildly. Their deeds don't match their reputation. And this letter is a call to live out what they have received and heard, to strengthen it once again. And you may have noticed, while a lot of these letters are harsh, this is one of the harshest. It's one of only two out of the seven with basically no consolation. The only affirmation they get is, there are a few of you to whom this doesn't apply. But besides those rare exceptions, this is a major problem. This church is getting a literal wake-up call. And yet it says, it's not dead yet. You can still turn. They can root out what is wrong, strengthen what is good, and no longer just have this reputation of being alive, but actually become alive again. And as I read this passage, it strikes me that in the Gospels, Jesus has so many stories and parables that say this same kind of message in different ways over and over again. For example, there's the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. A father asks his two sons, will you come work in the field? And one says, no, I'm not going to do that. But he changes his mind, and he actually goes and works. The other one says, yes, I'll come. But he never actually gets around to it. He never goes and works. And who, the parable asks, did what the father wanted. As they say, actions speak louder than words. Or consider a different parable from Luke 18, which starts out with Jesus saying, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, Jesus told this parable. Two people go to pray in a temple, one a Pharisee, which is a religious leader, and the other a despised tax collector looked down on by Jews. The Pharisee publicly thanks God that he's not like others, including that tax collector, and he goes on to brag about all the righteous things that he does in his prayer. The tax collector stands at a distance, not even daring to look up at heaven, but says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And he is the one, Jesus says, who went home justified before God and not the Pharisee. And so here the Pharisee is not just all talk. He's actually doing all the things that are supposedly right and righteous, but we see that empty actions or checking off the boxes, that's not it either but it's the posture and the motivation behind that action that matters. Now, I could go on and on. There were so many parables and stories that came to mind, but frankly, Jesus talks about this so much that I don't have time to get into all of them. 
You can read through the Gospels yourself, but suffice to say that over and over, Jesus makes it really clear that it is not just about appearance. It's not just about checking off the boxes of righteousness. It's not about our reputation or saying the right things or looking the part. So those parables and the letters to Sardis explain what an alive faith is not. But then what does it mean? What does it mean to be authentically following Jesus? Because I think that can help us see where we're falling short. And there's a lot that could be said for that too. But I think put most simply and when in doubt, I come back to the thing that Jesus said to come back to when in doubt. Which is the greatest commandment. It's recorded in several Gospels, but essentially says, love the Lord your God with your whole self. And the second is like it, meaning basically this is just part B of the same commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Luke's telling of this, he goes on to clarify, well, who is this neighbor I'm supposed to love? And he explains that with one of the most famous parables, which is that of the Good Samaritan. Which is when we find out that our neighbors are not just those who are like us or who we agree with. And being a good neighbor isn't determined by your status or your image or your reputation. Again, that theme comes back. Because in fact, in this parable, three people walk by a beaten up man, and the first two are those who would have been reputed to be a good neighbor, a religious leader and a judge of the law. But they walk by. They're not good neighbors. The good neighbor is the one who by social expectations would have walked by, who would have been the other and not a neighbor. And yet that Samaritan is the one who sees the dignity of a hurting fellow human being and stops with generous compassion. So then if being authentic, alive followers of Jesus at its core means to love God with our whole selves and to love our neighbor who is actually anyone and everyone with generosity and compassion, then what does it mean for us as churches today to have a good reputation, but to be inauthentic? How might we be like the church of Sardis? And as I asked myself that question of churches today, the first thing that came to mind was how so many of us are quick to say things like, all are welcome. If you look at church websites, social media, bulletins, street signs, you probably passed a banner that said that on your way over to church today. Everyone is welcome. You belong here, wherever you are on the journey. And yet too often, that's not the full story. Too often people will see and hear these promises from church, but then they go and they experience something else. Instead, the full story is something that has a little bit more of an asterisk attached, that you're welcome and you belong here as long as you acclimate to our norms and our culture and expectations. As long as you more or less dress and look and act like the rest of us, kind of within this range. As long as you don't rock the boat too much or bring up the things that we don't want to talk about here. As long as you or your family don't have any disabilities, we're not equipped to accommodate. And along those lines, often you'll really feel like you belong or really feel like a meaningful part of the community if you're married and ideally with kids. You're probably within the ages of 30 to 60. You're straight. You fit traditional gender norms, and so on, and so on. This list is too long. But so often, 
we find that if you're not any of those things, well, you're still welcome here as long as you're on your way to not being those things. Or at the very least, just keep it quiet. Don't make a big fuss about it. There can be some major caveats to our welcome. Now let me pause here before I go on because this is a hard message for the church, but I want to acknowledge that I'm guessing just about all of us have at some point, in some way, been on the receiving end of that. That we've experienced that pain. And so before I go on, let me just first say, for the ways or the times in which that has been you or a loved one, I'm sorry. We wronged you. That's not who we're called to be. And so for the hurt that you've experienced in Christian communities who promised you something and gave you something else, I'm so sorry. And thank you for being here. Thank you for sticking with it and showing up. This morning... As we consider what truth this letter holds for us, please hear the rest of this morning in saying, I'm not diminishing that hurt that many of you have probably experienced in the church. And I'm going to invite us to simultaneously hold alongside that, that whether we realize it or not, there may be ways in which we have also done that to other people, that we have also been inauthentic. Because as I alluded to before, there are so many ways that this plays out, unfortunately, that it means we can be on both sides of this experience. We can both feel rejected in some of our own ways and then also be the one who is harming and pushing away others. And like many of the letters in Revelation, this is not easy to hear, which is probably why every letter says, let him who has ears to hear. And so I'm going to encourage us to be Brave in considering honestly how we are like Sardis. And I realize that authentic is a buzzword of late, but failing to live up to our reputation or our words isn't just about we shouldn't be fake because being fake is bad and being authentic is good. This letter says this is a call to wake up because these false promises and this inauthentic reputation is hurting people. It's hurting the church's ability to bring hope and light in the world. It's damaging the church's credibility. And in doing so, rather than being the place where people can encounter God, we can become the place that drives people away from God. So failing to live out our reputation or our promises doesn't just make us look bad. The cost is far greater than that. And my guess is that most of you know firsthand exactly what I'm talking about here. For me, as someone who is both part of a generation that has largely grown disillusioned with the church, and as a youth leader in this community for the last 14 years, I know way too many teenagers and young adults and friends who have walked away because, at least in large part, of their experience with Christians. Sometimes it's because they've been actively hurt by the church. Explicitly or subtly, but frankly quite clearly, shamed, judged, silenced, or rejected. 
Sometimes it's because they're just ignored. They might feel like they're not welcome because they're just unseen. And sometimes it's because what they see in us isn't compelling. So even if the faith or the Christianity they witness isn't actively harmful, which, by the way, is a really low bar, despite claims of this faith being powerful and life-changing, what they too often see is something that feels shallow or disconnected from daily life. And so they wonder, what's the point? What difference does this really make? Now, certainly the reasons that people are uninterested or leave faith or church are numerous and varied. It is not this simple, but I have seen this too often. And I've noticed how quick we as Christians will be to blame culture or that the world is pulling them away, that they're straying because of all these other things. And I'm not saying that's not true, but have we reckoned with the ways that we are pushing people away? And to bring this even more close to home, one of the areas where I see this so consistently and so pervasively is for those who identify as LGBTQ. I remember years ago talking to someone who was gay and raised in the church, and wow, did he try. He tried to hang in there with church and Christianity, but he got to a point that he couldn't do it anymore. And the thing that has stuck with me for so long is that he said as soon as he left the church, and he didn't say this with anger or bitterness, just his experience, that as soon as he left the church, he found way more of the love and grace and welcome that Christians preach than he ever found in the church. Now, you might have a lot of thoughts running through your head, and I say that, and I don't mean to invalidate those, but I encourage you to set those aside for a second and just Hold that experience. Because that has stuck with me for years because it breaks my heart that that was true for him. And I've seen it to be true for so many people. And to bring that even closer to home, I had a similar conversation years ago with a student at Highway. They, and I'm going to say they here for the sake of confidentiality, to not reveal anything about them, had not been around church for a while. <clears throat> but they came back for a retreat or a camp experience with the youth ministry. And I had a good relationship with this person, so as we talked and you know, I kind of asked what's been going on, what are you wrestling with, as we talked, this person realized that they actually didn't have a problem with God. And when they thought about it, they thought, oh, actually, yeah, I know God loves me. So their hesitation and their barrier to faith was Christians at highway. They had stopped coming to church because once people knew that they were in a same-sex dating relationship, they felt judged. They felt like they couldn't be themselves. That they were no longer as welcomed or as valued as they were before. And let me clarify, as far as I know, no one said anything explicit to this person. No outright rejection or condemnation. But this person still felt it. They still knew. People who are vulnerable and frequently excluded are always on the lookout for whether or not they are safe and welcome somewhere. And it's not that hard to figure it out. It was the way people looked at them differently. The ways people talked to them or didn't anymore 
like they used to. The questions that people asked or stopped asking. And particularly for younger generations, for those who are teenagers and young adults, they are in the peak of figuring out who they are and their place in the world. And so they are particularly vulnerable and attuned to this rejection. So this person drifted from church, and in the process, they also drifted from God. And in our discussion, they realized they knew God's love, that God actually was not the problem. We were. That is devastating. And perhaps what's worse is that as I was preparing this, I have had so many faces and names of people that I love. Not just those who are LGBTQ, though unfortunately that's a very common and prominent example, but of people who in various ways didn't fit the mold. Those who have been part of this or a similar community, but they questioned God's love, they questioned if faith had anything meaningful to offer, they questioned if Jesus was worth following because they were grappling with what they saw and heard and experienced from the Christians around them. Let me reiterate, this is not just about those who are of any one group. This, there are all kinds of ways that the church can claim to be loving, to be welcoming, to be for everyone, no matter where you are. And yet, for a bunch of reasons, we know that people can feel unseen or put on the fringes, or their participation is limited and restricted, or even outright rejected. This is about how we are or are not living out our faith as a church holistically. This is about how, like Sardis, our deeds aren't matching our words or our reputation and reckoning honestly with the cost and the damage that this is doing. There is a cost to us as a church, certainly. Jesus said to Sardis, you are nearly dead, wake up. So we are missing out on the abundant life of Jesus when we have this inauthentic faith. And there's a real cost to those around us. When we are called to be a light, but our actions and our posture don't match those words, People lose trust in us. And worse, they lose trust in the God that we claim to represent. I know these are hard words. It has been a hard sermon to prepare, as I have reckoned with this too. So please don't hear me. The fact that I'm up here means that I'm exempt from this. No. I have had to reckon with the ways that I have done this. My heart here is not to make us all feel bad. It's to help us be honest because the cost of not doing so is too high. I, for one, am so tired of seeing people try to be in the church, try to find God, and watching them walk away hurt and just done. I'm guessing that most, if not all of you, have some faces that come to your mind too. So then let's not just point to those people or those other churches that make the big headlines or those others out there who are doing this and pat ourselves on the back for being better because that doesn't get us anywhere. 
Let's have the courage to look honestly at ourselves. To have the ears to hear. Because church, we have to do better. The band is going to come up and lead us in a time of reflection. And I encourage us to use this time to repent for where we have strayed. For the ways that our clothes are soiled. Because in repenting and coming honestly before God, that is where we can root out what is wrong and find the forgiveness and the mercy to try again. To wake up and to be the church that we are called to be. And so I want to close with just a few verses as our prayer this morning, reminding us not only of the church that we don't want to be, but who is the church that we are called to be. Would you receive these words? You are the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, when you love each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. May we not just hear or claim these words, but truly live them. May we be a church that is fully authentically alive in the way of Christ. Amen.